Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Welcome to this special episode of Talk Easy. Uh, I was in Champaign-Urbana last weekend for the 21st annual Ebert Fest. Uh, My film uh, that's called Sebastian was playing there. It's one of the very few short films that have ever played the festival. And uh, it was unbelievable and, and a very surreal moment to return to this festival that I've been coming to for about six or seven years to play one of my movies uh, I I don't have all the words to articulate the moment, but I, I want to say thank you uh, to Chaz Ebert and Nate Cohen, uh, Brian Tellerico, and Matt Zollersites. Uh, this would not have happened without them. I also want to thank all the people in Champaign-Urbana who were at the festival and who are listening to this show. So many of you came up to me and said so many kind things about this small Uh, movie I made with a handful of people. It was a film made by seven, eight people for a budget that was tiny. And to have so many of you uh, approach me and tell me how much the movie meant to you and that you identified with this uh, immigrant story and that you understood the importance of this story right now in 2019 under a president who is, uh, whether you like him or not, unquestionably, objectively xenophobic. I think a story about the goodness of immigrants, that immigrants make this country better, I think that matters right now. And uh, it's hard to think about my grandfather, who passed away a few years ago, and and what he would have made of all of this. But I'll tell you, the people in the Virginia Theater that morning, uh, when the movie screened, 
made me feel like it was all worth it. So, um, what you're about to hear is a live episode I recorded in front of uh, the Virginia Theater audience. The first guest is Rita Coburn-Wack. She's the director of Maya Angelou and Still I Rise. Um, It's a really, really lovely talk with her. And then right after, um, I bring on Peggy and Carlo, this lovely uh, octogenarian couple who've been together for over half a century. Um, They've been coming to Ebert Fest since the beginning of the festival 21 years ago. And then lastly, I call up Richard Roper on the phone. I've, I've always wanted to ask him about his time with Roger, working on Ebert and Roper the show for those uh, six, seven years, uh, the future of film criticism. There's a lot of other really wonderful stuff there, including a very funny uh, Gene Siskel gambling story that I will not spoil here. I want to thank Rita, Peggy, Carlo, and Richard for coming on. Live shows are something I don't do very often, but all of these people were lovely. And uh, I think you'll like it. We'll be back with our regularly scheduled programming next Sunday. But for now, I hope you enjoy this uh, very special episode from the Virginia Theater. Here we go. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Hello. Hello, now. Um, please help me welcome to the stage the director, Rita Coburn. Hello. Thank you. Good morning. You know, since not everyone has seen your movie, mm-hmm. I'm going to do my best to just talk about you as an artist okay. and not go into plot details. When it comes to Maya Angelou, you end up producing her show for Oprah, but before that, you do a radio interview with her. What are your memories about doing that interview with Maya? I think people call people to them. I think that happens in life. And so I remember her. I want to go back just a little bit further. I was at uh, Chicago State University, and I was sitting in the standing in the back, And she came through a glass corridor on both sides. And I heard people talking. And some of those people said things like, look at her. Um, She she doesn't want anybody around her. She's tutu. She's so-so. And they said all of these things, right? But I was just watching the way she was walking and standing up because it was standing room only because I wanted to be near her. Later, in her home because Oprah Radio had me interview her in her home. Oprah said, she's older, go to her home. Don't have her come out to a studio when I worked for Oprah Radio. One day she told me a story, and the story was, you know, my brother Bailey was my kingdom come. He was the world to me. And he had died, but I promised beforehand to go to speak at Chicago State. And I couldn't let the people down. So I got up and I got on the plane and I told him, if you just let me come in and speak and let me go, I can't talk to anybody, but I can do that much, then I can come. And so when I put those stories together like 20 years later, 
I really understood that one of the things she taught me was really not to judge people or a situation because you don't know what happened. And I kind of sort of didn't answer your question, but I hope I did. I thought it was a good answer. Okay, thank you. Because um, I, so we called each other to each other long before we met, if that makes any sense. How do you think she arrived at that place? What place do you mean? The, the place where she needs to ask people to let me speak, but I, I can only do so much. Hmm. And, and, and to offer that wisdom to you, which is don't judge people mm-hmm. because you don't know their conditions and you don't know what's happening in their interior lives. Like, How do you come to be that wise about something, you think? It was so many things. So one, when your mother and father abandon you, when you're sexually abused, when you have to go live in a different environment, you can take all of those things in in many different ways. But I think what it built in her was a compassion for everybody because she had really been some of everybody. And I think that she just had a heart for people. And she also began to know that she had to, she found her voice and she also had to protect herself. And so she would give, she would always say, I will be of use, but I will not be used. So she would always do that. And then I saw her once, her um, assistants would have stacks of books for her to sign. And even when she was older and she had to hold her hand with the other to sign, she would, she would have them open the books, read the name, and put a sticky on there and sign. And she would say, I asked for this, so I will do it. And she would just keep going. So I think it was just a, a, a gift that was hard won. I don't think she came to it all at once, but uh, it was what people call, you know, it, it was learned intelligence and wisdom. Uh, there's a quote from her that I know you like and I also like. She says, you may encounter many defeats, but you must not be defeated. In your life, in your career, because you've gone from radio to being an author to a documentarian, where are the moments where you are temporarily defeated and you must keep going? That's a really good question because it happens all the time and then it seems like I have to re-remind myself uh, (laughs) how how to get over this. Um, what I think happens when you're defeated is that you are learning something. And so, like, for instance, if everything's going crazy over here, you need to stop for a moment and look over there because there's something happening and there's something you need to learn. It doesn't make it easier when it happens, when I'm discriminated against, when I don't get the thing that I think I've worked for, And when I'm disappointed personally, I allow myself to feel all of that, but I know it's going to get better. And I know that I'm going to have learned something from it. So I keep plowing through. It's like writing a book or uh, directing. There's a point where it's so chaotic, you wonder if it's ever going to come together, Mm -hmm. but you know that it will. How do you know that it will? I think there are many people who say they would like to do something. They try to do that something, and then a month passes, and they're like, God, that's a lot of work. 
How did you keep moving forward? Was it something your family taught you early on? Yeah, and I think it's, a, it's part of a black experience. It's that make a way out of no way thing. Um, and of course, I was born in the Christian faith and, um, and practiced that. And I was always taught the first words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so it's my understanding that I am supposed to create something out of nothing all the time. And, and, and that's what I saw people do. So I'm comfortable with nothing. I'm comfortable with creating. Um, I'm uncomfortable sometimes in the process, uh, but that's all of us. I mean, all of us want to be known. We want to be respected. We want to find ourselves, but we have to do the hard work to get there. Some people don't do it. I mean, you can live in a house with people for 30 years and not know them. Uh, but most of us are really trying to become known and, and loved for who we really are, and we have to do the hard work to find out who we are in order for that to happen. There's this great Bill Withers quote. He's on this show called That's Sex and Money. I don't know if anyone here has listened to it, but Bill Withers says uh, at the end of it that none of us come here to hide. In regards to your spirituality, um, you wrote a book, uh, in the early 2000s called Meant to Be. Um, some of the correlations within that book in your interior life is that uh, when your father passed, you went on a spiritual quest. What was that? Well, um, I got this sense that my father was the only man in the world who loved me from the time I got here and wanted nothing but my good, and now he was gone. And I just had a hard time with that. Plus, he was pretty cantankerous, and he had a lot of attitude. And I really didn't know where he was, you know, to be frank. I'm like, is he up there? Is he down there? Where's my daddy? And so... You're talking um, about heaven and hell here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. um, so I asked my aunt, who raised me uh, in part and who raised me in faith, and uh, she said something I didn't like, which really was... Uh, was metaphorically, it's like none of your business. And I was like, oh, no. Uh, so I prayed a lot about that, and I had a dream. And I'm given to dreams and visions. Now, some people are, some people aren't. I think we kind of all are if we listen. So dream being, I get it at night or when I'm sleeping, vision means I'm just up and I see something. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay with that. I've learned to live with that. So um, I prayed about my dad, and um, I saw a dream of him and I sitting on the porch, and I could only see the backs of us sitting together. And we used to do that all the time. And then in the dream, my grown self, uh, the phone rang, and I went and I picked up the phone. And when I picked up the phone, that's when we had phones in the hallway. And so when I picked up the phone, I heard my father's voice, and so I talked to him. I said, where are you? He told me, well, I didn't say, where are you first? We laughed, we talked, and I knew that he was okay. And when I started to say, where are you, his voice started to fade, and the whole thing was over. But after that, I just had a peace about it, and so I just went with that. My, my least favorite part of dreams is when it's just getting good, 
and then you have to wake up. Right. This, this, you know, I know. And you this, want to go get it back, and I, it doesn't work. Well, because like then you that. go back yeah. to sleep, yeah. and you're thinking, I can re-enter this thing. It just never happens. Right. Um, I, I'm curious. Uh, the people are about to watch your movie, and going into it, I wonder. And uh, after having watched it last night, what do you think it is about you that makes people want to open up? Because as a documentarian, you have to really instill some trust right away. Because without it, you don't have much of a movie. All of us, the, the faster we get to our authentic self, which is easy to say but hard to do, you have to fight for it. Um, the more that when you spend time with people, you're with them. And that's another thing that Maya Angelou taught me. If you're going to be with somebody or be in a space, be in that space. Uh, don't have your thoughts and everything someplace else. And then everything that you give there, everybody said it when you leave. You gave them something, they gave you something. I prepare for interviews, and I believe that after I prepare, even if I don't have everything I feel that I need, when I sit down with that person, they know that I've really tried to do my best to get an understanding of them and that I'm respecting them. And so they are usually very open with me at that point. Yeah. Um, random question, but most nerve-wracking interview you've had to do, was it with Maya? The one where you go into it and you're like, boy, I really no, hope this goes well. The most nerve-wracking was actually Valerie Simpson. Mm -hmm. I knew her. Uh, I knew how close she was to Maya Angelou. She was very close. They spent uh, holidays together. And uh, I felt like I was getting nothing from the, the interview. I was, I was prepared for it, but I, I had seen her at the home so many times, and I just felt like I wasn't getting anywhere, and I was pushing. Now, what I really believe is that that interview took place after Maya Angelou had passed, and I think that Valerie was still grieving and everything else, and I was pushing and uh, the interview then was edited, and I was like, I don't have anything. Well, in the unscripted documentary, the editor functions as a writer. So the editor put together so many great bites from her. I was like, did she say that? <laughs> and so it wasn't, uh, it, it was a great interview, but I didn't see it at the time. And as I was doing it, I was like, why is she holding back from me? Why won't she, you know, open up to me? Uh, but you also have to realize that that person has all of their good, all of their bad, all of their humanity at the same time, plus the day of whatever it is. And you just have to work really hard and trust it. Uh, last question I want to ask you before we... Uh, keep going here. Your grandfather was a notorious storyteller. It feels like you come from a long line of storytellers. With this movie, but also moving forward, what is sort of your mission statement as a storyteller? What, what do you, you want to do and what do you want to say? Ooh, I wish you had to give me some time to think about that. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I am... 
as I get older, and I call it like going north, you can't take the same things you had with you in the south. Your children aren't on your laps anymore. They're in your heart. You don't see them every day. You have this trek in life that is somewhat lonely. Um, and then you have the history and the context from where you come and all these things you want to say. Um, I want to have a lot of courage with what I say, and I want to tell the truth. I, I'm moving into screenwriting, which is really uh, something that I see a trajectory. You know, wrote a book, uh, did the radio interviews, did do the documentaries, but you keep going for a larger canvas and content changes in the way we tell stories. I want to tell stories about women some of the things that we don't talk about, but that touch us deeply, because I think that I have to use everything I have to say what I can say in the time I have left, if that, yeah. That's not a mission statement, but that's kind of what. That's yeah. pretty damn good, I think. Thank you. Um, Rita, I wish you courage, and thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, Champagne. This is a wonderful, wonderful festival. It has so much humanity to it, and I, I've just loved being here. Everybody that put it together you did a great job. Thank yeah. you. Thanks. Um, now we have two more folks coming on here. So, Hi. <laughs> Rita is going to leave, but I'm okay. going to have Carlo and Peggy come up for one second before we get started here. You probably have seen Carlo and Peggy forever. Please give them a round of applause. Good morning. Let's get another chair here for Carlo and Peggy and Selmo. And Selmo, they have been coming to Ebert Fest for 20 years, helping out, and they've been married for 60 years. So... Um, I asked Peggy, what do you think about doing this? And she essentially was like, please don't ask me to come up. Um, but she's here. You guys are both here. I have a few questions for you. Um, the first is, uh, you guys have been coming to the festival since it was called the Overlooked Film. You've been here since the beginning. Um, many of you have been here since the beginning. What is your earliest memory or maybe your fondest memory of... Roger in that time. There's so many we can talk about, but we're, we're going to isolate it, and Peggy's going to talk to you about what transcribed. Well, Roger was always so uh, friendly and um, greeted the volunteers, shook our hands, but one incident I remember, in his book, he talked about the lady who was his babysitter, and one year, there, her two daughters came to the theater and asked if they could come in, get a book autographed, and have a picture taken with Roger. Well, they did not have a pass, and so they were not allowed into the lobby. A gentleman who comes to the festival frequently and knows my husband came to Carlo and said, if anyone can reach, reach Roger and tell him the situation, you can do it. So he did, and Roger went out into the lobby signed the autographs, they took pictures, and the ladies went away very happy. And I, I think that just typified Roger and um, his wonderful personality and 
how, how generous he was. It's people helping people. That's what it amounts to. I think that's, that's very much this festival. I often see people helping people in ways I wish people were helping people in normal day-to-day -day life outside of this festival. I continue that every day of my life to, to make the world better and make people happy. Mm. Yeah, let's round of applause. Um, I have a question. You two have, uh, are still coming here, now 21 years removed um, from the beginning. What makes both of you, you know, you guys got here at 8.30 in the morning. You probably went to bed late last night from the screening. How do you guys keep coming year after year? What makes you do it? It's the energizing thoughts of coming in and meeting people and sitting in this wonderful building and the things that are going on here that's continuously, it's just absolutely fantastic. Yes, it's, it's coming and seeing the, uh, a lot of the same people year after year. You become friends and um, you recognize each other. They recognize you and... Um, it, it's just the, the energy in the building is, is just uh, wonderful. The last thing I want to ask, I know we have to go. Uh, you guys have been married for 60 years. I feel like that deserves a round of applause. I, I want to, this is maybe a naive question, but I'm 24, so bear with me. <laughs> How do you make that work for 60 years? I'll take that one. Okay. <laughs> two, two things. One, I love her. Two, she loves me. <laughs> and we put it all together for 60 years, enjoying each other's life. She blessed us with two beautiful children, now raising their own children, six grandchildren. Peggy? Well, we take care of each other. Um, he's... Uh, always taken care of me and uh, my job was to take care of him um, and and that's that's what we've done for 60 years uh, we try to be considerate of each other on our wedding day I, I picked Peg up to get go down to City Hall in Chicago to get married and the one thing that her father told me was take good care of her and I said I promise you I will and he has <laughs> I think that's it um, I can say on behalf of all of us, you two have taken care of us for many, many years. So I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for coming up here despite you guys being nervous to do so. I'm not nervous. I don't, I've done this in, in he, my he, entire he, career. You're not he, nervous. She's a little nervous. He, he loves it. <laughs> Peggy and Carla, thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. That was Carlo and Peggy and uh, Rita Coburn. Now uh, I'm sitting in my house, uh, a little anxious, a little nervous. I'm going to call up Richard Roper on the phone. There's some questions I've always wanted to ask him. We were going to do it at Ebert Fest, but uh, he had some mild surgery and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, let's give him a call now. You know, talk it out. This is Rich. 
Richard Roper, this is Sam calling. Hey, how you doing? You sound good. Okay. Cool. Some things I wanted to go over. I, I want to know, what are your memories about, you know, the, the show changes the name and it goes Ebert and Roper. And I, mm-hmm. wa- I want to know, in those early days of coming on the show and officially being, you know, accepted and, and part of this program that had such a long history, mm-hmm. were you nervous on that first day going in? Uh, you know, that's a great question, and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to sound, uh, you know, arrogant about it, but I, I really wasn't, Sam, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, for one thing, I had been friends with Gene, and I've known Gene for a long time, uh, and I had uh, even sent a note and talked a little bit to his widow after I was, uh, you know, uh, picked to be on the show, so I knew that, you know, I didn't feel like I was doing anything that Gene wouldn't have wanted, that his family wouldn't have wanted. The other thing is, of course, I knew Roger for a long time, and I'd actually been kind of a guest co-host for about 20 shows before I was officially named the co-host. So, yeah, I mean, I was definitely nervous the first couple times I did it. But by the time it became an official partnership, you know, I, I already felt very welcome and very comfortable. So that it kind of helped that it wasn't just an overnight thing like, hey, you got the job. We're going to go on the air next week. You know, so I had a nice lead in uh, time and plenty of time to kind of settle in and find a rhythm. Was it challenging to stay you know, competitive with Roger, because that's the thing that he responded to with you is that you Mm -hmm. were combative. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he actually, you know, the thing was uh, with a lot of the other uh, guest critics, you know, and in many cases had far more experience and expertise as film critics, as writers than I did at the time. But this is a television show and this is a a mainstream television show, uh, you know, on broadcast TV and it had to be entertaining before you know as much as anything else obviously you want to be informative and enlightening and and do good criticism but um i think some of the some of the best critics on the show maybe didn't come across as forcefully as roger would have wanted because that's not what they did you know they were writers first and foremost a lot of them did have broadcast experience Mm. so you know he made it very clear from the start is like you know you've got to you've got to have 50 percent of the airtime you got to speak up if you disagree with me. You you have you can't hold back. And yeah, you know, there's a part of me that says, "What the hell am I doing? I'm disagreeing with you know maybe the most respected and certainly the most famous <laughs> film critic in the world." And here I am telling, "What do you know?" So uh, that's you know, it, there were moments where you kind of felt like, "Okay, you know, strap in." But the great thing about Roger was too, you know, we'd get into a, a pretty heated debate on the show, and it was all legitimate. It was no, it wasn't pro wrestling. But as soon as the segment would end, Sam, he'd say, that was great. You know, you really got your points in. You're wrong, but you got your points in. That's going to make for a good show. <laughs> so it was, great to have, you know, it was great to have somebody who had been doing it for 25 years. You know, and sometimes he'd say to me, like, yeah, you know, that was great. But, you know, you, if you strayed from a point, I'm telling you what you should say or how you should say it. But, you know, maybe think about this or that. And that always helped as well. I mean, the, the, the thing you're describing that I love is you started writing about movies when you were, you know, a teenager writing about the Maltese Falcon and and, and trying to apply yeah. for a job. And obviously growing up, Roger is someone you admired. And then to sit across from him and have to tell him, I think you're wrong about this movie. Is there any moment for you that you can remember? Maybe it's a film or, or a time on set where you're like, God, I may be out of my depths here. Like I may be outmatched by Roger Ebert, potentially the greatest film critic to do this thing well there was probably that probably happened you know every week there was probably a time <laughs> where i thought i mean i i never pretend i never pretended as if i had the 
you know, the same skill set or experience, uh, you know, as Roger. And if we were going to sit there and, you know, get into, you know, long, hour-long debates on, on things, look, I, I was never going to not stand my ground. But again, you know, the nature of the show, of course, as you know, we're talking, you know, was to talk about current releases to, you know, to, you know, to get into it about that week's movies. And, you know, the next week there'd be a whole new batch of movies. So, in, you know, in terms of like, was I out of my depth or was I certainly, you know, not his equal as a critic or was experienced? Of course. But when we were reviewing, you know, Vanilla Sky or, or Almost Famous, you know, we were talking about Cameron Crowe films or anything, you know, I, I felt very confident in my opinion. And as you know, you know, I don't even don't know if we can say anybody's right or wrong when it comes to opinions. They might be ill-informed or we might disagree with them. But mm-hmm. as, as, as Gene Siskel actually used to say, you need two things to be a professional film critic. You need to have an opinion. You need to find someone to pay you for it. Good luck with the second one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, now that now that we have years removed from the show, tell me, what's the movie that you believe you got right and that Roger got wrong? Oh gosh! I mean, every time I every time we disagreed, I think I got it right. <laughs> he got it wrong. So I mean, I don't know. You know <laughs> I'm sure we could go back. I mean, I, I I can't sit there and tell you like, oh, this particular movie I was right and he was wrong. I mean, you can go back and look at almost any any show or certainly any year. There were probably some films that I had ranked among the best of the year that he didn't even like. So it seemed like the Garfield movies were a big you know, point of contention. <laughs> well, they made for good TV, you know. I mean, I thought I, I to this day think they're terrible, and you know, he had a soft spot for them. Uh, you know, and we all do. I mean, and there's certainly some films I look back and think, "Wow, I can't believe I really liked it." But I guess at that time, you know, that week, at the time, I really did like a particular film. <laughs> Now, you, you would, like this Yoda better than the other Yoda. Yeah, and you know what? Go back Come and look on. at that other Yoda. That it's, other, first that of other all, Yoda, the other you Yoda, you can practically see the guy crouching underneath the other Yoda never looked like Yoda a sock puppet. puppet like but never, and not only didn't he not look like a sock puppet, but Lucas has said that he tried to make this Yoda look like the Muppet Yoda. Only so more you wouldn't expressive. See. And there's this whole crouching Yoda, hidden you dragon like the fact thing. that Yoda turns into an action figure now with his lightsaber? I think that that After is the a next scene movie, that, a, that Star know. Wars fans are going to absolutely love. I loved it's it. It's totally out of character there's a nice, It's not totally out of character form. That's part of his skills. He's not just this brilliant Listen, philosopher. If you're Yoda, He's also if you're a Jedi Yoda warrior. You have the force. He's a Jedi master. If you encompass the force, you don't need no laser so- saber. <laughs> you do when you're to, going up against another Jedi dude who's also... Got you just kind of go like powers. this. No, well, you, you're they, Yoda. They, Nobody they, can stop you. Well, <laughs> there's certainly films you go back. You know how that is, mm-hmm. and, you, and or or sometimes you know, uh, you know, it's the other way around. Where I'm like, gosh, I, I was pretty rough on that film, but now that I look back on it, pretty impressive. You know, if I give you this example, Mean Girls, which you know, I was on a, like two and a half stars on that. Which you know, you're right there. It's close to being a fresh these days. You'd say on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's considered a uh, you know, a thumbs down. Mm-hmm. I watched it recently and I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I probably, I mean, I still don't, you know, I, I still have some problems with it, but I went back and looked at it and I'm like, I were reviewing that right now. I probably would have reversed my vote on that. I probably would have given it a thumbs It's up. a pretty good movie. Yeah, it's a pretty good yeah, movie. Yeah, it really, it, it's, it's, you know, the writing's really strong and, uh, you know, I mean, some of it obviously, look, it's hit or miss, it's comedy, but, you know, when you look at the, you know, look at the cast and you look at, you know, and, and Tina's writing and stuff, and I was like, yeah, I probably, you know, probably was wrong if you want, if you will, on that one. Is is the movie review network talk show not possible to do in 2019? If if Roger and I were still doing the show today, it certainly would have had to evolve because, as you know, you know, it, it would uh, we tape it on a Wednesday, 
and it would air over the weekends, you know, either on Saturday and Sunday. In fact, in Los Angeles, it usually played Sunday evenings. And, you know, back in the day, a lot of people in L.A., including a lot of people in the business, they wouldn't know what our verdict on a movie was until Sunday evening, two days, essentially, after it had opened. You know? mm-hmm. um, so for one thing, you know, it would have to be a, a kind of show, maybe it would be a streaming type of thing, it's certain, or, or close to live. You couldn't sit on it. And we could sit on our reviews, and nobody would know, usually until, you know, the day the show aired what the verdict is. And I think, you know, quite frankly, too, you know, the idea of, you know, uh, two middle-aged white guys, which, you know, I have nothing against that because I am one. But I mean, if we were going to, if you were going to do a show like that, I, I think, you know, I've had discussions with people, you'd, you'd want to bring in probably more than just two people and certainly have mm-hmm. a more, you know, diverse, uh, you know, voice or voices on a show like that. But in terms of people's interest, do you think the audience is still there? Never mind how you'd have to change the format. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I definitely do. And, you know, I hear from people all the time because, it's, you know, there are all kinds of different shows out there. Most, most of them are what you call online. But I still think, you know, there's a place for kind of, I don't want to say the voices of authority, but, you know, uh, people with long respected track records weighing in on a national level about movies. Uh, you know, it's, it's times to have changed, though. You know, you used to see film criticism on the morning television shows on today's show mm-hmm. and good morning America and things like that. And in a lot of cases, I think, you know, the feeling is, and I don't blame them for shows like that. You know, you're going to have somebody come on and rip a movie and then say, Hey, in the next segment, the cast of the film joins us and they're in the green room. Right. Now. right. You know, it's kind of and one of the things I liked about our show. It was a standalone uh, show about, you know, movies about you know, critical of movies. It wasn't, we didn't also very rarely once in a while, Gina Roger and myself would sit down with, but it would be with, you know, it would be Roger talking to Spielberg or, or Spike Lee about his movie. Mm. You know, we never combine that, you know, that thing where you're like, well, you know, you know, coming up on the show today, we're going to be reviewing A Star is Born with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. And hey, here's me on the junket for A Star is Born, you know, mm. which, you know, to this day, I, you know, I don't do a lot of interviews. Uh, I always insist on seeing the film in advance. And if I'm not a you know big fan of the film, I'm probably not going to sit down with the star or the director because it just seems like, you know, You'd have it's to a lie. strange uh, mixture. Yeah, well, you know, or <laughs> I remember someone someone asked me about their film once. And they knew I didn't like it, and I said, "Listen, it was in focus the whole way. I got to give you that." You know, uh, yeah. And then I don't want to lie, and I certainly don't want some actor or director to sit down with me and do a half hour interview and then go, "Jesus, he just gave that movie one and a half stars." You know, <laughs> having put it that way, Sam, I do think, yeah, I think there's, you know, there's there's still an audience for that. As you know, I mean, people still want, yeah, there's a million reviews out there, but they still want people they can trust. Do, do people like those interviews on Good Morning America when, like, you you know, they did, like, Casino Turns 30 or whatever, and then you have yeah. Marty Scorsese and De Niro, and they don't want to be there, and the rest of the cast has been lugged out from, like, the Bronx to yeah. come, and no one cares. Does anyone actually like watching those? I think you know. I think it depends. Uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned you know that film because as you know too. I mean, like I love Scorsese's film, and I remember being at the 25th anniversary uh, Tribeca for Goodfellas. And listen, Robert De Niro's one of the greatest actors of all time, and he's not one of the greatest interviews of all time. <laughs> you know, he never has been. Mm-mm. And you know, sometimes you can make for awkward stuff. I think you know. I think sometimes if they're done well, there, there's some value in it. But yeah, this, you know, the, the, the classic seven minutes segment on these shows you're not going to get much uh you know one of the things i'm lucky enough to be able to do is if i if i'm offered or pitched an interview with someone you know i can say listen first of all i'm not going to do a junk kit i'm not i'm not going to do the assembly line and do five minutes and i want to do something different and i got to have 45 minutes or an hour or two hours with somebody so we can actually have 
a conversation beyond just what was it like to work with director B and do you think there's going to be a sequel and who's your dream you know co-star kind of stuff you know? do you think there can be uh in terms of importance and impact another critic on the level of uh, Pauline Kael or a Roger Ebert or an Andrew Sarris you know in the days where mm-hmm. they had so much power is that even possible now I don't think it is I, on that level I mean uh, there was a time, uh, obviously, you know, the, the critics you mentioned, I mean, they could save a film, you know, Bonnie and Clyde was disappearing and then it got, you know, great coverage. I think maybe a Time Magazine cover story and then it got a second life. And, you know, even when I was coming up 20 years ago, Sam, with Roger, you know, we were still seeing the influence of the show, not of me because I joined the show. But I remember, you know, getting a screener of My Big Fat Greek Wedding. It was a VHS screener of this little movie uh, based on a play that Reed Wilson had produced, you know. And I watched it, and then I said to Roger, I said, we should do this. this. You know, we should do this on the show. And I remember hearing from Nia Vardala saying, we were put in more theaters and, and, got, and given a, more, a bigger advertising budget because we were able to say that mm-hmm. you guys gave it two big thumbs up. And, uh, you know, Patty Jenkins has mentioned after, you know, the, the incredible and obscenely long gap between uh, Monster and Wonder Woman, you know, for her as a director. But when Wonder Woman came out, she publicly said, and she told me, you know, in some correspondence that, you know, the review, in particular, uh, Roger's review, you know, changed her life, you know, of Monster and, and, and really made a difference. So I don't know. I mean, obviously, great reviews can certainly still help. And that's why, you know, the, the ads will still, you know, quote critics and certainly can make a difference. But I, I don't know that in this day and age, one critic can either, you know, champion a film into Oscar contention or, you know, vice versa, put an end to a film. It's not like if a play opens on Broadway, the New York Times destroys it, <laughs> you know, and has, unfortunately, in some ways, has the power to maybe have a play close. You know, I don't, don't think mm. that is possible anymore with movie criticism, honestly. Has it been hard for you to continue moving forward as a film critic after the show ended? I mean, how, in terms of your career? Well, I mean, obviously, it's been, you know, the most important and obviously most profound thing was losing a, a really good friend and mentor in the world losing such an important voice. That's, you know, that's something that you never get over with, get over from, you know. Um, in terms of my career, you know, Roger had, had been sick and wasn't able to do this show. And I went on and did, you know, dozens of shows with Michael Phillips and other critics. And then this, you know, the show was going to go in a different direction. So for me, first of all, I love the fact that I get to write for the Chicago Sun-Times, Roger's home newspaper, since 1960. Seven, I want to say there have been two film critics at the same time, and that's a cool thing to be, you know, to be a part of that legacy and to have that, you know, to be in the same newspaper. And I'd actually written reviews while Roger was, you know, still doing reviews. In fact, he'd often say, "Oh, if I can't do this one, Richard should write it." So I still have that outlet. But you know, I've been lucky enough too, Sam, that I always did other things. You know, um, it's funny you and I were talking uh, on the panel the other day at Ebert Fest about, you know, people were asking about what should you do to get, you know, become a film critic and. I remember just about everybody would mention on the panel would mention, hey, you should do more than just, not just, but do more than just be a film critic. Do other things. So, you mm-hmm. know, I've always written about a lot of other topics. I do a radio show in Chicago that's not about movies at all, you know, which is a, you know, a talk radio show. And I've been doing talk radio for years. So for me, if, you know, if I'd only been the co-host of the show or only been or just, you know, concentrating on movie criticism, I think it would have been a lot more difficult. But I've always been lucky enough to have these other, you know, these other plates spinning. Is there something about Roger that people don't know or talk about when they talk about Roger? Huh. 
that's a good question. Well, I would say this. Um, what probably people, a lot of people didn't know is that Roger could tell more jokes than Rodney Dangerfield or Henny Youngman. He would usually walk into a room and immediately tell three jokes before even being introduced to people, right out of the old-school joke playbook. They were funny <laughs> because Roger was telling them, and also funny because he thought a lot of times they were funnier than they were. So I always laughed. He's like, Richard loves my jokes. And I go, no, I love watching you tell your jokes. That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, I, I want to ask you, Gene Siskel, you had a relationship with him. Yes. Uh, I want to hear what a gambling story between the two of you. <laughs> oh, huh. I don't think you expected me to ask you that, but I, 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 yeah. I, I would love well, to know that. I do know, this wasn't between the two of us, but I do know that when he was, he was at the CBS affiliate for a long time, and the show, of course, was on CBS before, and before that, PBS. And I know he had these, like, they were like dice, but they were like pigs, like little pigs, and you'd roll them. So if the pig landed on its side, it would mean something. If the pig landed on its feet, it meant something. Mm-hmm. And he would always do these little games with the crew and the camera guys, and I'm almost positive that those were loaded pigs, like loaded ties, because he never lost. <laughs> oh, my God. Roger, uh, Gene, Gene was a guy who, I mean, I love Gene, but Gene was like, you know, Roger was much more, Roger's a very sophisticated person, but much more of an innocent than Gene. Gene was much more cynical and could get Roger to fall for jokes. Then Roger would just kind of go with it and kind of laugh. But, you know, Gene, just, Gene loved doing that kind of stuff, you know, like this kind of, uh, whether it was getting the edge of gambling or, uh, you know, getting one over on Roger, that he just got a big kick out of that. Why do you think the two of them work so well? <sighs> well, I think, I think they work so well. First of all, they were like, you know, the same generation. They came up as like, you know, students and high schoolers and young people of the 60s. They both had that kind of, you know, you know, 60s, I don't want to say hippie, but definitely, you know, socially committed uh, look at the world. And then, of course, they were rivals at the two newspapers when, you know, that's what that was all about. And, you know, look, the Sun-Times and the Tribune are still rivals in some ways, but not like we used to be. And, you know, they were, they were always trying to one-up each other in print. You know, if, if Faye Dunaway was coming to town, Roger would try to get the, you know, the exclusive interview. So they had that competitiveness as newspaper men from the start. And I think that just works really well on TV. It's like, I'm sure, you know, like the, you know, the classic opening was the two guys, you know, Tribute truck pulls up. Sometimes truck mm-hmm. pulls up. And I love that. And they're you know arguing. Yeah, it's great. You know. And uh, uh, here's a little bit of fun trivia for you too. The uh, composer of that theme, of the Siskel and Ebert theme, was a guy by the name of Dick Marks. He's Richard Marks' father. Richard Marks, the pop singer. Uh, Dick Marks wrote that song. Actually, he was a Chicago uh, ah. commercial jingle writer. So you know that was always cool. Every time I heard that, I got to know Richard years later. I'm like, oh my god, your dad did the theme song for. But that's what I think it was. You know, they were genuinely competitive. So that you know, and they liked each other and respected each other. But they really did fight all the time. I saw that. You know, like I was on the screen room a lot uh, when they were still doing the show, and I saw them arguing about what burger they were going to get when they got to L.A. and when they got off the plane. And they weren't doing it for an audience of anyone. This would be in the hallway or in the elevator. You know, they, it was always you know one battling the other, one trying to one up the other. Did you ever see those clips that surfaced online about the two of them sitting in front of the camera and they're bickering, and Roger is like just making fun of Gene? I, th- I think he even calls him a drunk in one part. I mean, it's it's really yeah. funny. They're doing promos. This week on Cisco and Ebert in the movies, the science fiction adventure RoboCop. Very funny, Donna, and you're my friend. That's the last time you'll ever enter my home. You know that for Gene, speech is a second language? Roger's uh, first language is 
Yes, I'll have apple pie with my order. He asked the McDonald's girls if he can have apple pie with their order before they ask him. And you know what Gene says when he goes into McDonald's? Can I have apple with their order? Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> it was on across the country, so there were maybe 250 stations. So once a year, we would sit there and go, you know, I'm Roger Eater. I'm Richard Roper. Make sure you listen, you know, tune in to Eber and Roper this Thursday at 9 o'clock on KTV or whatever the, for each station. So you'd get slap happy doing these because you'd have to do it, you know, or you know, make sure you tune in to Don and Cindy and Good Morning Tucson. <laughs> so, so that's what that's from. So I could see them, you know, because even Roger sometimes looked at me and goes, why the hell are we saying, you know, Jim and Mandy are the number one team in, in Tacoma. How do we know they're any good? We never met them. We just, <laughs> I say, I go, Roger, no one's going to hold us to this. Just say, you're watching Channel 7 News. All right, we'll do it that way. You know? But those guys, you know, my thing was, anytime we get into something like that, I just go, why don't we just move on? And Gene, Roger never wanted to move on. They were having too much fun bickering with each other. I have two things for you before we go. The first is, what do you miss most about Roger? I was spending time with him you know, off camera, you know, it, which, whether it was at the screening room, uh, traveling a lot, you know, because we were going to do, you know, promotional things or go to LA or go to the Oscars um, and just hanging out and talking and not about movies. Most of the time, you know, if we were in a, the backseat of a car stuck in traffic trying to get to the airport or if I was, you know, invited to his you know, summer home and we'd be at a barbecue or something, we weren't talking about movies. You know, we talk about sports of the world and politics and, you know, things like that. I'll tell you a quick anecdote, actually, Sam. We did the Tonight Show one time with Michael Moore, and I got to go out to dinner with Roger and Michael Moore and listen to those two guys uh, talk politics. And at one point, Michael Moore goes, I think you're to the left of me. I didn't know there was room to the left of me. So <laughs> those, are, those are the moments that were great, that were just, you know, that, I, that I'll never forget. That is so great. I, <laughs> I don't know what the left of Michael Moore looks like. Yeah, exactly. Maybe AOC. I'm not really sure. <laughs> the last thing... Um, this is less about Roger and less about the festival, more about you. What do you, in a very genuine, and maybe this is too earnest for you, what do you want f- for yourself and, and your work in the next act of your life? Yeah, I don't have some, you know, some grand answer about my legacy. You know, what I, what, I, what I just want is for people to continue to to want to hear my opinion and to tell me, you know, how much it means to me. That's the best thing is when I hear people, when I meet people and I go, I, you know, I read your stuff or I listen to you on the radio. You know, I, I really appreciate, you know, the, the passion you show or, you know, how much you care about it. That, that's what I, you know, that's all you can really ask for is that, you know, you, you put your best work out there and, and it resonates with people. Do you think you've done a good job? That's for other people to decide. I, I you know, I, I will tell you this. I love what I do. It's funny because I never, I, I know it's a cliche, but I never think of it as a job. None of the jobs I have because I'm doing all the, all the things I wanted to do as, you know, as a kid. A dream. Oh, I'm, you know, I'll be a writer. I'll be on the radio. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get to write books and be able to do all that. You know, I, I, I feel like I must be okay at it, or people still wouldn't want me to keep doing it. Yeah, that, that I think that's about right. Uh, Richard, <laughs> you know, I always tell young people. Real quick, I always tell young people too that you know sometimes you know some people in my business that like, oh, the program director at the station hasn't told me anything about my work. I go, you getting a check every Friday? They like your work. <laughs> yeah, I think especially in 2019. If you're getting a yep. check, accept it and be happy. Exactly. Uh, Richard Roper, it was a joy. Thanks for coming on. Anytime, Sam. Great talking with you. Bye-bye.
special thanks this week to the good people of Champaign-Urbana, the Virginia Theater, and Chaz Ebert. I also want to thank Rita Coburn, Peggy and Carlo, and Richard Roper for coming on the show. To learn more about Ebert Fest, which happens every April, you can go to their website at ebertfest.com. To learn more about our show, you can go to our website at talkeasypod.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to help out this listener-supported program, you can donate to the show at TalkEasyPod.com slash donate. We're on PayPal at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com, and we're on Venmo at TalkEasyPod. As always, the show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, our social media is by Crystal Farmer. Our booking is by Ian Chang. Our intern is Elliot Weintraub. And the show is produced by Neil Innes. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I will see you next Sunday. And uh, here's a song to play us out. Have a good week, everyone.
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 